So Acts 9. This picks up pretty much from where we were last time. We were reading about Philip. And because the, um, the church in Jerusalem had been, had been persecuted and scattered. Meanwhile, in other words, back in Jerusalem, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He replied, now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Straight Street is still there. Um, you can look it up, you can Google it. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. <coughs> then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see him again. Sorry, you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your presence amongst us this morning. Uh, as we come to your scriptures, we ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to, to make them comprehensible to us. And then to make them a double-edged sword to cut us to the heart where we need to be cut to the heart. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've grabbed my slides, Ian. 
So, how many of you have had a Damascus Road experience? Show of hands. Many of you have had a Damascus Road experience. I, I, I saw a half a hand. I saw a, a, few, a few half a hands. In the sense that Jesus spoke to you in a powerful way and your life was turned around. How many of you as becoming a Christian being a totally gradual thing? Okay. And how many of you just on principle don't like putting your hands up in church? <laughs> Last time we said that conversion, and we are using this Christian jargon, and I'll explain that later on. Conversion, in other words, becoming a Christian is not complete until you've received the Holy Spirit. Okay. And we looked at some of the ways the Holy Spirit works in our lives, giving courage and conviction and clarity and understanding of the Scriptures and uh, a confidence uh, that, that we're God's children so that we would know whether or not the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. Because there is no more important question than whether you're a Christian uh, here this morning. So there is no more important question as whether there is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And today, then, we see perhaps probably the most dramatic conversion story in the book of Acts, which is the account of Paul on the road to Damascus. And what do we learn beyond what we've already said about conversion? Well, I think principally it's this, that to become a Christian is a radical reorientation. It is a 180-degree turning around of life. It is life flipping over, like the coin, it either lands one side or it lies the other side, and conversion is it lying the side where you're in charge, and when you become a Christian, it flips the other way up, that the Lord is in charge. I think we can also learn, and we'll look at this, conversion is followed by a calling, a new job and a new identity, and we'll look at a third C really briefly, which is charismata. Okay. Ooh. Okay. Charismata are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to know God at all. But we need the gifts of the Holy Spirit if we're going to be useful. I think some musical gifts are growing up here this morning. Useful to the church. But let's look at the story to start with. First off, Saul the persecutor so previously Saul had stood by and he guarded the coats while Stephen was stoned so Stephen was one of the first seven deacons in Acts 6 and he was stoned to death for talking about Jesus and Paul watched over the coats of those who stoned him what do you find most disturbing about that well plenty of things but I find it slightly disturbing that these guys took their coats off. It's just not one of those little details. This was going to be energetic and sweaty work, stoning Stephen to death. I find that a rather disturbing detail. But Saul was the guy who watched over the coats. But now he's built up a complete head of steam uh, against the followers of Jesus. He wants to go to Damascus. 
Maybe like the Jerusalem apostles, he's heard that Philip has made a, a big impact for Christianity in Samaria, and he wants to respond. So he goes to the high priest, he asks them for letters of permission, so he can visit the synagogues and he can dig out, root out the Christians who were there, people who belong to the way, that's what it's called, that's what Christianity is called at this point in time. But before he arrives, <coughs> he sees this bright light and he falls to the ground and he hears a voice. And in Acts 22, he puts it like this. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And it's actually, it's interesting. It's one of the, we get this story told three times in the book of Acts. We get it in Luke's words in Act 9, and then we get it in Paul's words twice. Um, once telling it to the Jerusalem authorities, and then later on he tells it to um, Festus and King Agrippa. Festus is nothing to do with the Adams family. Um, he's, he's a Roman governor. That completely falls dead among people of a certain generation. <laughs> But I find this just another little interesting detail. Who is Saul persecuting? This is the question. Who is he persecuting? Who has he gone to arrest? He's gone to persecute Christians. These followers of the way, this fledgling church. Who does Jesus say Paul is persecuting? Me. Jesus. Who stood up for you when you were a kid? Okay. Did anybody stand up for you when you were a kid? Maybe they didn't. Did you have a big brother? I remember a battle of throwing stones with this other gang across the road. My big brother was there. Or a parent? Who stands up for you now? Well, if you're a Christian, Jesus does. He said to his disciples in Matthew 25, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In other words, if you look after Christians, you're looking after Christ. Here, effectively to Saul, he says something else, which is whatever you, whatever you Saul, persecutor, do to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do to me. And Jesus takes it personally. I find that's a kind of like a really significant reassurance we're in Jesus' gang, and he takes offence when we're put down or belittled or persecuted for our faith. Is that not a great truth? Paul's companions, in contrast, they're left speechless. They hear the sound, but they don't see anyone. The implication is that Paul saw uh, the risen Jesus, and that's important because that's what makes him an apostle. And that's confirmed by the other accounts in Acts 22 and 26. And he's struck blind, and he has to be led by the hand into Damascus. Meanwhile, next slide, in, the, in Damascus, the Lord appears to this poor guy named Ananias. Would you like to have been Ananias? The Lord calls him by name, a bit like Samuel. And he asks him to go to a praying man, Paul and to pray for him. And Ananias is understandably a bit reluctant. 
Saul is already famous for all the wrong reasons. It would be like asking an Afghan believer to go and pray for his Taliban official. But the Lord reassures Ananias. He's got a plan for Saul. He graciously allows Ananias to know his purposes. So Ananias goes, he lays hands on Saul, and he prays for him. I think that's the assumption, doesn't actually say that. And he tells Paul what the Lord's plan for him is. He's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And Saul is filled with the Spirit. We read that. And as he, it's interesting that actually as he's filled with the Spirit in that same moment that he's prayed for, the scales come off his eyes. So for Paul, this experience of being filled with the Spirit is that moment where in a strange sense, he actually sees the light. The first time he sees the light, he's blinded. The second time, he, he sees the light again as he's unblinded. But there's no tongues. So there's no sense that being filled with the Spirit here is to do with any of those um, signs. What he does do is that once he goes out and he starts to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. So what are we going to learn? What are we going to take away from this story? Conversion. I'm going to use the term, even though I recognise it's become really loaded. It is just a traditional term for a change of religion. So in one dictionary, I know that in rugby or American football, it means scoring some extra points. Okay, but I found that in the dictionary as well. Um, in the online dictionary, it's an experience associated with a definite and decisive adoption of a religion. That's how it's been understood. That's how it's in the dictionary. That's how I'm going to use it. Well, in a different online dictionary, the fact of changing one's religion or beliefs or the action of persuading someone else to change theirs. And it's come to mean, though, this kind of forced or coerced conversion um, from one kind of sexuality to another. Just want to say at this point in time that any kind of coercion or, or force is, is wrong, isn't it? But we want to have freedom of speech, and so I'm going to carry on using the word conversion. What is conversion? It's a radical change to a belief in Christ caused ultimately by God. So all you people out there who have not had a Damascus Road experience, okay, and that's all of us apart from three halves or four halves. If you're a Christian, you've not been struck by a blinding light, but the scales have come off your eyes and you have seen the light. You have seen the light, otherwise you're not a Christian. See, Paul puts it like this. He says, the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the gospel that displays the, the, the glory of Christ. Before you become a Christian, you're, you're blinded. Blinded by, by the enemy. Paul goes on to say, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. At some point, if you're a Christian today, at some point you heard the gospel message and the light came on. 
What light, Paul says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So it's a bit of a convoluted sentence, but basically if you, to be a Christian is you've looked at the face of Christ um, and by a, a work of God, the light has come on and you said, oh my goodness, Jesus is God and is Lord and I need to bow the knee to him and accept what is on offer. So if you're a Christian, you need to see the light. Secondly, conversion, I think, always follows conviction. So I never had a, uh, a blinding light moment, but I do remember the moment of conviction. I remember the moment when somebody told me that I was separated from God uh, because of my sin. And I remember that moment because it struck really hard. It came like a, a thump. Conversion always follows conviction in the sense of seeing that you, yourself, you're a sinner. That without something miraculous and supernatural that you're wrong with God. So Paul goes on to write to Timothy, his protege, later on. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy. Paul's really clear that he was a dreadful sinner. He was persecuting Christ because he was persecuting Christians. And if you're a Christian, there will have been at some point in your life, we started to talk about this last week, this moment of conviction of, of the Holy Spirit, that you're a sinner, that you're wrong before God, and that you've offended him, and that your sin, as Isaiah said, has cut you off. Um, from the Lord. And following that, then, conversion is a, is a radical turning around. You see, I think, we think of, I think we tend to think of sin on a kind of sliding scale. So we think, um, here's, who's the worst person you can think of? Hitler. He's the normal one, isn't he? Here's, here's Hitler over here, um, Pol Pot. I, I don't know who do you think of who's over here, though. Who's a really good person? We don't, I don't know that we know any anymore, but... Tim Keller. Tim Keller. That's a good idea. Let's honour Tim Keller. I, I was looking for somebody other than Mother Teresa, because that's the other kind of standard, the, the, the standard answer. Okay. And, and we think, well, I'm about here. Okay. And um, to become a Christian is kind of shuffle up a bit. Okay. Or to sort of move along the line. And, and Jesus says, though, that right behavior is not just shuffling up. He says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. And on that definition, we discover we're quite a lot further down here um, than we thought we were. Have we loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. Loved our neighbor as ourselves? No. But this is the next thing. The, the important thing is, then Jesus says about sin is, is about where you are facing. Before you are a Christian, 
you are facing towards self. You are facing, however good or bad your, your behavior might be, it's, you're still facing towards self. And to be a Christian is to turn around and it is to go the other way. It is to, it is to face God, uh, to face Christ, and to face outward to other people. It is, it is a turnaround. And you see it in, in Paul's life. And the difference is, you can't face that way, and you can't face that way at the same time. Okay? You are not an owl. Okay? You cannot face that way, and you cannot face that way at the same time. You have to make a choice. And, and this way feels incredibly risky. Who is going to look out, look out for my needs when I'm going this way and I am loving God and loving my neighbours? And that is the risk and that is the trust that's involved in becoming a Christian. And the answer to the question, who will look out for me when I do that, is this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness... And all these things will be given to you as well. Yeah? That's what Jesus says, isn't it? Why do you worry about clothes? Look at the flowers. They don't spin. They don't go to Primark. Even Solomon's not dressed like one of those. Don't worry saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? The pagans run after these things. It is pagan to run that way. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And I say this because young people were always in that, along that scale of, of where am I? Have, I? have I become a Christian? Is this a faith that I own? Older people... Um, you've been around church for a while. There are always some who, uh, who think they're Christians, but they're not. There are people who think they are converts who are actually adherents. And I'll explain that in a minute. So conversion. More briefly, calling. Conversion re- re- results in a calling. A calling to turn away Um, from self-rule, turning to Christ, um, Paul then repeatedly, from this point on, introduces himself as Jesus' slave. It's Jesus' slave. Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's how um, NIV translates it. But it's the same word as slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be uh, an apostle. This is your new identity, people, in Christ. Yes? Yes? You are now a slave of of Christ. How's it fitting? How are the slave clothes fitting? But that's the job, isn't it? We follow our new master's agenda and, and purpose. Previously, we were our own masters. Though in reality, we were we were slaves to whatever addicted us. Now Jesus is your master, and you are his slave. And he asks you then to be his witnesses. Come follow me, he says, and I'll make you fish for people. 
Um, briefly, even more briefly again still, charismata. So we've talked about conversion, talked about calling. Charismata, it's a plural word, uh, a Greek word for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are gracings given to the church. You can look them up in 1 Corinthians 12, various other places. Some are obviously supernatural and others might be less so. So a gift of music, gift of healings, obviously supernatural. But God gives different, pe- diffs, different gifts to different people in the church so that they can all be built up, so that the church can be built up. And I wonder... And maybe you can come and tell me this, particularly if you've been around the church for a while. I think we've got a bit hung up on looking for the Holy Spirit to come in the midst of sung worship. And I think that's a mistake, and I think it's cutting two ways. I think on the one hand, it freaks some people out because they don't want the Holy Spirit to come in that kind of way. And then it's maybe making you leery of, of sung worship because you're... F- frightened by the the idea of miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. But for other people, the opposite problem, it's the the central focus, this is what the Holy Spirit does. And we don't recognize we need the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's work all the time, all the day, all the week, all the year. So again, it's a disaster if we get hung up about Holy Spirit's coming, coming in worship as if he wasn't already here. But that said, we need the work of the Holy Spirit just to live a Christian life. We need him to come every day. So we said last time, he gives us comprehension, he gives understanding of the word of God, gives us courage, um, he gives us conviction uh, of sin, he leads us uh, in behavior, he tells us what's good and bad, uh, he gives us confidence um, that we're children of God, all these things, we need them all the time. And then... Yes, we need the Holy Spirit to equip us and gift us for all the different roles in the church. So, Celia, sounds like you had this amazing gift of cutting out, you know, par excellence, as well as, um, sorry, that's to trivialise it. You obviously had a a great creative gift uh, of thinking what uh, the Bible story was and how that could be um, worked out for little hands. It's a gift um, that equips the church. So, yes... On top of this work of the Holy Spirit and conversion and calling and all those basic things that he does, we need him to equip us, to give us gifts um, for the church. So to kind of sum up then, are you a convert or an adherent? Adherent comes from the word adhere, which means to stick. So are you sticking around or are you genuinely converted okay i'm a dog convert okay had you noticed yes okay how did you tell don't tell me okay don't answer that all right across a period of time i couldn't stop couldn't shut up about it okay i am a dog convert i was a cat person i am now a dog person um and you can tell I'm not somebody that simply hangs around kennels, okay? So this is pushing this too far, isn't it? I'm a dog person, and I have a dog, and I enjoy walking the dog. 
And you can tell because my speech changed and my habits changed. So are you a convert? Someone who's been convinced that they, without Christ, they're offensive to God. Did conviction ever land? It has to, if you are to be in Christ. Have you received forgiveness in the Holy Spirit? As, Paul, as um, Peter would put it at the end of Acts 2. Have you experienced this radical change of direction? Are you conscious of this new slave identity? Are you looking for areas of spirit-empowered service? Or are you just sticking around? We, if you're sticking around, that's lovely. We welcome you. We enjoy having you here. But we want for everybody to be converted to know Christ and the reconciliation with God that comes from that. And the joy of being one of his children.